In business, we're all dealing with the C word, not just coronavirus, but also that other C word of complexity. That one has been around for years and is not going away. Our guest is known for making the very complex, awesomely simple. Today, we're talking with one of the top business and leadership development experts in the world with insights for leading during a crisis and beyond. It's John Spence on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help businesses of all stripes get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. Those conversations are an enormous opportunity for business leaders and professionals to pivot, stand out, and grow. Yet many of us don't know quite where to start, or they wonder whether they and their employees or colleagues would ever have the right knowledge, skills, or personalities to lead consistently effective customer conversations. That's where my work as an author, professional speaker, and consultant comes in. And on this podcast, we're here to help you with ideas for the three necessary components for managing your message. First, creating the message itself, meaning the words, stories, insights, and evidence you want your customers and prospects to know about. Second, equipping and growing your network of messengers, the very people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into an everyday business advantage. When you bring those pieces together, you will very likely enjoy improvements in revenue, market share, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. I take you through that process in more detail in my new book, available from Career Press. It's titled, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it in paperback, Kindle, and audio versions wherever great business books are sold, including Audible. You can also find a free sample on my website, jimcar.com. We bring all of this together for you because, simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. Today, you and I get to learn from an expert in leading during crises like COVID-19 and the more mundane everyday growth opportunities. I won't mention every national or global list of leaders that includes John Spence. Here's just a sample. Top 100 business thought leaders in America, the American Management Association's top 50 leaders to watch, the top 500 leadership development experts in the world, the Thinker's 50 Distinguished Achievement Award, and on and on. John has an exceptional view of leadership in businesses, large and small. John Spence is also gracious. He reviewed and blurbed my book. I appreciate that. There's no better or more complicated time to speak with John. We caught up with him at his office and studio near his home in Gainesville, Florida. John Spence, it is a distinct pleasure to bring you here onto the Manager Message podcast. I've been trying to track you down for quite some time, you know. You were kind enough to, to blurb my book. You're out there everywhere, online, speaking, coaching. You're one of the busiest, most active people I know. So thank you for, for spending some time with us. Oh, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure. I'm excited to be with you. 
excited to have you here. And along the, the mantra that you have, making the very complex awesomely simple which is a, a great promise and a benefit statement of what you do. John, for the benefit of our listeners, in an awesomely simple way, you've had a really interesting path in just kind of how you become a leadership expert and coach and, and speaker. You had a lot of responsibilities and some pretty cool positions very early in your career, and then you've parlayed that into a really interesting and global presence and executive leadership. Could you walk us through just a little bit of how one becomes, at least in your case, how does one become a global leadership expert doing the things that you're doing? We'll go way back because it, it sort of sets the context for the story. I grew up in Miami, Florida. My father was a very famous malpractice attorney and I went to a nice prep school and everything. And when I graduated, I had good grades and I got, a, I got admitted to several different universities. And I chose the University of Miami in Miami, Florida, because it was near my boat and my girlfriend, which is why one year later I failed out, was removed there. And then I moved up to Gainesville, Florida, where I, where I live now, and restarted college, community college. And then I went to the University of Florida and ended up graduating number three in the entire United States in my major. I was offered a job before I had graduated from one of the Rockefeller Foundations as a director of public relations and marketing. I worked directly for Winthrop P. Rockefeller III, and I had four billionaires on my board, and everyone else was worth more than $100 million. And I started there doing marketing, and then the CEO basically made me his right-hand man. I guess I would have been a chief of staff, something like that. I didn't have that exact title. But... A few years later, he did not do well. He was struggling. And at the age of 26, they put me in to, quote unquote, hold down the fort, brought in a new CEO who did not work out, gave it back to me, and things started going so well, they left me in. So at, at 26, I was running an international Rockefeller Foundation with projects in 20 countries around the world, testifying before Congress, flying to negotiate. We did fisheries work is what we focused on quite a bit. So negotiating things like that, I left there and then I became, after a couple of years, it got to be too political. I left to become the CEO of an international strategy and training firm and did that for about three years. And then I jumped around for about four years as a stand-in CEO at companies. If their senior executive got sick or retired early or died or got indicted by the FBI, I actually had one of those. Uh, <laughs> we call it externality, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I show up I'm like, all right, buddy, let's get to work. Like, we have no computers. The FBI took all. I'm like, all right, let's go to Best Buy then. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Who has an abacus? Yeah, exactly. So that got me into doing... I, I, during that time, I, I ran five different companies, two of them multinational, and I was just there as a Band-Aid to keep the place together to make sure that when the new CEO came in, and I was the one that would hire the new CEO. So I, I got a lot of experience really before I was 35 running companies, international work, and then it was right about then that I went independent as a uh, consultant, trainer, and coach. It's been I'm entering my 29th year, which is incredible because I, I never thought I'd be doing this. <laughs> Isn't that uh, the case with so many of us uh, today is, is the way that it began and the way that it is right now, never would have thought it that way. But certainly the the experience that you had in an early age as a stand-in CEO, as someone who was kind of holding down the fort or putting a Band-Aid, as you say, on a, on a situation, has probably prepared you very well to 
offer really good advice these days. So message managers, as we're recording this particular episode, we are right in the middle of COVID-19 and uh, the impact of that on business and on people. And so you've talked many times along the way, John, about what's different for leaders during the time of crisis versus the more mundane. Doesn't sound like you do a whole lot of the mundane stuff, but you know the the regular day to day. It's it's probably trying to get your team focused on a few things that are strategically important and not get waylaid or, or distracted. But when there's a crisis, especially something from the outside of this degree, I guess the key here for a leader is how can we focus on a few things that we can control and just kind of keep our emotions and our priorities and our support together. I don't want to lead the witness here, but what do you think during times, this in particular, John, but also just in general, when there is a crisis, what is it particularly important for leaders to do? It's a great question. And since this hit, I've been doing virtual town halls for a lot of my clients, talking to their entire leadership teams. And some of the things we've been discussing is the need right now to balance and project confidence and courage, while at the same time embracing tremendous transparency, authenticity, and vulnerability. People want to know that you have a plan, you have a vision, you, you see a way through this, but they also need you to give them. And the, and the big thing we're looking at right now is what I call SBA, SBA, and that's safety. Another word you use there is stability, belongingness, and appreciation. And the leaders that I'm working on, I'm, I'm saying this is something you really need to give to your folks is some sense of stability or safety that you're doing everything you can to keep the company healthy, to keep their job, to take care of them. They're living in a world right now with zero stability. Everything's in chaos. So how can I bring some stability there? Belongingness is very challenging virtually, but it means checking in often, seeing how people are doing, communicating as much as you can. And I'm going to come back to that one in a minute. And then the last one, appreciation, is important at all times. But in a time like this, you need to celebrate small wins, big wins, medium wins, anything you can to keep people motivated, on mark, focused, doing what they need to do. So safety, stability, belongingness, appreciation. The other big thing is EQ is a really important thing, and I don't have any. <laughs> in theory it's really important right yeah yeah no i mean i look at leadership we've done yeah. i look at three things iq eq aq iq you're going to be competent at your job eq you need to be able to make genuine connections with other people that sort of self-awareness and empathy put together and then aq is the newest one which is your adaptability or agility quotient my research and the, my work with my clients shows that eq is about five to seven times more important than iq got to be competent, but if you can't work with other people, you're not a leader. But AQ, agility or adaptability quotient, I think right now it is essential. You cannot lead effectively unless you're agile and nimble and moving fast and letting go of old ideas that don't work and picking up new ideas. But I do want to back up to EQ. For those of us that don't have high EQ, this can be a challenge because one of the things is when people are going through what they're going through right now, they're going through a cycle of emotions from stability to immobilization, to denial, to anger, to bargaining, to depression. And I'm describing that exact cycle. And it's the same cycle that people go through when someone close to them dies. So let me underline that. That means that people right now that you work with are under the same amount of stress, anxiety, fear, depression that they might go through if one of their loved ones died. So this is very, very serious for them. 
So the big thing I'm helping leaders with right now is saying you have to work with the emotions too. You can't just do accountability and checklists and dashboards. All that stuff's essential. But you now have to really deal with the human part of it. And for a lot of us, that is challenging because we don't have the tools and the skills and the experience of wading into an emotional situation with someone who is, their emotions are very heightened and they're raw. I'll tell you what I've been teaching my clients, and you're, and you're going to jump in on this and give much better information. But the one thing that I've talked about is validating people's emotions. To, to let, you know, when someone is upset, just shut up and listen. Let them vent. Sometimes they want help. Sometimes they just want to vent. After they've talked, validate their emotions. I can see that you're angry. I can see that you're scared. You have every right to be. Many, many people are. I am. You know, your emotions are okay. Ask them if you can help. Would you like some advice or suggestions? Most of the time they'll say yes, but sometimes they'll, no, I just felt like complaining. <laughs> you know, just I'm venting and then validate their emotion, you know, give them some advice, then validate their emotions again. It's a pretty, I'm sure this is a, a system you know well, but for someone who is not typically attuned to other people's emotions, it at least this is a framework that I can use to get in there and, and genuinely care. I have to have tools or a process because I, I don't just do that naturally. And few of us do all of those things equally well, and we're all going to have those areas that we need to work on. And, and executives need their own level of support. But I thought it was interesting, John, you were talking about many of these emotions are going to be very similar if you lost a loved one. And I, I wrote down the word mourning. And I think that there are, mourning with a U, that people will quite naturally, as human beings, they're going to be mourning what their plans were, what their job used to be, what their expectations were. And oftentimes we're, we probably go a little too far. Often said that whenever you see an article or a news report that says anything close to if current trends continue or at this rate, then you should stop reading or stop listening at that point because people <laughs> will take whatever seems to be going on now and they'll just project it forward to a really terrible end. The thing is that the pendulum always does kind of swing back to some degree. But I would imagine in that acknowledging the emotions that people have and acknowledging what they're going through and what they want to be able to rebuild, also thinking there must be, and, and maybe this is something that you're seeing with the executives that you're speaking with today, because there's on the one hand is, is you can't just say, hey, we have to be agile and adaptable and everything has changed, but you still need to be rooted in some principles. This may not be a great example, but it's the best one I came up with in about five seconds. So if if in your organization, let's say customer first is a principle that even with all of this disruption, we're going to stay as true to that principle as possible. It may simply mean we're going to have to do some things differently in how we respond to and reach out to customers so we have to be agile and adaptable in the means through which we do it, but yet the principle remains because that's who we are. That's probably not stated uh, supremely well, John, but how do you see that trade-off that leaders need to make between we're going to keep true to our principles, but we're going to have to be, as you say, more adaptable and agile in how we do that for a while? Yeah, I, I look at this both, both from a leadership standpoint and a business standpoint, that in a time of great change there are some fundamentals that will never change. You know, from a leadership standpoint, honesty, integrity, caring for your people, there are things that are non-negotiable. In your business, typically I look at four or five areas, talent, culture, 
extreme customer focus, disciplined execution. I think that no matter what you do, those are always applicable now, today, 10 years ago, 10 years from today. I will say, though, I counseled, coached a lot of companies during 9-11 and through the Great Recession. And here was the message to the ones that made it through. And I'm not saying I'm the one that, that did it, but here's what I counseled them. Right now, care for your, for your employees, your people, more than you ever have. Take amazing care of your employees. Give them the support, the resources, the training, the help, everything you can to allow them to focus on doing the best work they've ever done. Your company has to be, and I was talking to one of my clients yesterday, I love the way they said it, indispensable. Or I have a Steve Martin quote, I love, be so good they can't ignore you. Right now, you've got to take great care of your people so that they can do the best work they've ever done, which leads to number two, take great care of your customers, which will only happen if you take great care of your people. So another phrase I love is whoever owns the voice of the customer owns the marketplace. Now is the time appropriately setting expectations, but to be in close contact with your customers, checking in on them, being the one that's there now so that A, if they have the decision to cut back, you'll be the one that they cut back the least or the last. And so they remember clearly how you took care of them through this crisis. And when business bounces back, they're going to be your best customer and they're going to be your sales force for you because they're going to tell everybody how great you were in the middle of all this chaotic stuff that you took great care of them. The last one then is, is to look at your financials, but don't freak out. Keep an eye on them. Set some indicators or red flags or trip wires that says, if we get here, we'll make these decisions. But until you get there, don't worry about it. One of the other things I've been counseling a lot of folks I'm working with right now, and, and this sounds pretty simplistic, but if you do it, you actually do it. It's very powerful, which is sit down and write out a list of all the things you can control in your life right now. What is everything you can impact, influence, and truly control? Write that list out, then take massive action on the things on that list. Write out another list of all the things you cannot control. That list is going to be much longer, and it'll start with coronavirus, the quarantine, the economy, the government, and, and sort of like you said, if, can, if uh, current rates continue, the more time you spend obsessing about that, worrying about it, freaking out, you're not helping yourself or anybody else. So every time you start to obsess about one of those things on the list you can't control, just go back at the list, look at the list of the things you can control and focus, focus, focus on those. Great advice, John. You have been, continue to be a keynote speaker. Obviously, there's a lot less of that going on at the very moment, but you kind of evolved your business to do more and more executive coaching uh, over, over the years as well. And I'm curious in those, as you counsel leadership teams and entire businesses, of what executives and leaders are typically asking for, and then again, maybe leading the witness here a little bit, John, but do you find once you are in those conversations that what they need and what they get might be different than what they ask for sometimes? That's an interesting way to put it. Well, I, I can tell you that when I, I look across the folks I'm working with right now, the themes that come up over and over again is I need to have very candid conversations with my executive team. We've got to get to a newer level of trust and transparency because we're going to have to make some really big decisions. And I need to know that everybody is being brutally honest with me and we're making this based on the best data we can. So increasing the trust and communication, especially within your senior leadership team. Number two is communicating better to their people. 
how do we get the message out? How do we make sure that we don't scare them, that that we say this is to prepare you, not to scare you? And we've got, you know, short-term pessimism with long-term optimism and given the right messaging internally, absolutely critical. The other thing that I'm seeing too is, and we, we mentioned it briefly, is they're dealing with emotions both personally in their families and with their people that they've never had to deal with again. And many of them are overwhelmed that, okay, I, I can lead my executive team, but I have a whole bunch of other people I'm having a hard time with. And I'm going home if I'm not you know, under lockdown and my family's freaked out. Everybody's there or I'm in quarantine and we're all going a little bit stir crazy. So I see them, the emotional part is really struggling for them right now. Some companies know they're going to be in very, very serious trouble. And if things don't turn around in six weeks, they'll be out of business. Other companies weathered the Great Recession and they'll say, I'm going to lose 20 or 30 percent revenue and it's going to really, really, really hurt. But we'll come out stronger on the other side. I've been around some executives and they say, yeah, we want, you know, we want brutal honesty. We want, you know, all the different phrases that radical candor, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) And yet they consciously or unconsciously or maybe have been setting barriers to really getting the truth getting that sort of honesty from those around them. Are there some specific skills that you can help leaders with or that you can point them toward? So like, if you're not hearing the full truth, this might be a reason why. Here are some things you can do to foster that sort of environment. A couple of things. You've hit it on the point, which is why folks have coaches or colleagues or friends or a mastermind group or someplace that you can go where there's a lot of safety and someone can say, you're really, from my point of view, it seems that you're not handling this real well. What I always tell executives, if one person says it, that's probably an opinion and it's worth listening to. If four or five people say it's a pattern and it's, you need to look in the mirror. I'm going to get all the feedback I can as a leader, but when I start to hear the same message from three or four or five people, then I know it's, it's something. And I always, there's another, we, you know, you, you mentioned radical candor and brutal honesty. There's a great book out called Extreme Ownership. And one of the things I tell folks is at the end of the day, it's, it's all yours. I mean, it, when it comes down to it, you are the owner, the CEO, the president, the leader, whatever it might be. You own this. So you have to look the mirror and fix it. I also think it's really critical that you get someone on your team that you truly and deeply trust and tell them, give me the very worst news. What everybody else says, don't, don't tell me who's saying it, but I need to believe that you've got your ear to the ground for me and you're going to come back and give me the unvarnished truth and create a relationship where if I start to push back, you can say, you're doing it, John. You're arguing with me here. This isn't something you can argue about. What I'm giving you here is facts that I've heard from other people. I'm not making this up. So fighting, defending, explaining, blaming, none of that works. And you've got to have somebody on your team or from the outside that can speak to you that way. And they know that you care about them enough and you love them and they trust you that they know you'll tell them the truth and help them understand what they need to do to move forward. Interesting how you talk about being in kind of active fighting or defense mode sometimes in in conversations. I wanted to come around to something you've written about recently. It certainly resonated with me. It was the idea of being a competitive conversationalist. We'll see this sometimes, not just as executives talking to managers and and their colleagues, even in selling conversations at times. We really feel like we're trying to, you know, take the high ground. We're going to win the debate with a prospect or a customer when 
frankly, you can wind up winning the, the immediate battle and definitely losing the war. When you talked about being a competitive conversationalist, or at least at, at times kind of <laughs> falling into that, what do you mean and, and where do you see evidence of that and how to fix it? This was born out of the fact that I really struggled with this early in my career. I was sure that I was right. I had you know, read this, done this, run this company, flown there, met this person, blah, 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 blah. And I really had a, a high opinion of my own opinion. And then one day I realized I wasn't right, that uh, there is no necessarily no right or wrong, one perfect answer and a few mathematical equations and stuff. But other than that, it's just your point of view. And as soon as I let go of constantly trying to defend my point of view and my facts and my ideas and understand, that helped me a lot. The other thing that I think a lot of people struggle with, so first of all, I realized a couple of things I asked myself, is what I'm going to say right now going to add any value to this conversation at all? And about 60 to 70% of the time, the answer is no. I'd just be talking to talk, to hear my own voice or try to impress the other person. So before I say anything, is this going to add any value? Number two is another phrase I've learned recently, which is, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? And there are many times, especially with friends or you know my family, where I could argue for a position, but it's just not worth it. And it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. I just said I'm not right. So would I rather try to build up my case or just be quiet and let it go? And it's, it's not going to make any difference. And again, about 60 to 70% of the time, the answer is I'd much rather be happy than jump in here and, and try to create a, a frank and strong discussion, aka an argument. And then the last thing, which is one that I've struggled with, and I think a lot of people do, is I've done some fun, you know, I've done some cool things and I got some great stories when I played rugby or this, that, and the other. And I'm like a can you top this kind of guy. Someone tells a story and they are so proud or they're talking about this and so excited. And all I'm thinking about is I can't wait till they shut up because I have a much better story. I have learned now that I don't need to tell those stories, that I'd rather let the other person have that fun and that excitement and whatever it is. And my story is probably not that important. And, and then the last thing, Jim, is you know this as well as I do. As a coach, my job is to ask really good questions, lots of them, be an intense listener, and then help someone find a way through a problem with a little bit of my guidance, but not my direction. My job is not to tell people what to do. It's, it's not to be a sage on the stage. It's to be a guide on the side. And you do that by being curious and asking pointed and difficult and unique questions and taking lots of notes and telling people back what they said and then saying, let's work on this together. And that's a learned skill that every leader needs to have to be able to coach their people well. Great perspective, John. And uh, just to highlight part of what you said, it's oftentimes, and there's certainly a lot of emphasis, we've talked about it on this program, about storytelling and the power of stories. But the best stories aren't necessarily just your stories. There are stories that others can relate to, that they can put themselves in and understand. And there's a lesson that they can apply to their own lives. And so there's a very strategic way of selecting these stories to tell, as well as when not necessarily to share a story and let other people tell their own, as you're saying. Yeah, I picked up a couple of phrases that I, I never really knew before. <laughs> and they sound like this. Tell me more. That sounds really interesting. Keep going. I'm curious. To help me understand that. And, and I'm, you know, A, I knew it from a coach, but I, just in my personal life, I, I can look back 10 years ago and say, 
these are words that almost never fell from my lips. Because <laughs> I, boy, did I have a great story to cover after that one. Now it's just like, no, John, they're interesting. They're important. You need to hear what they say. Shut up and ask more questions. That serves us all well as leaders and, and confidants and friends. Sure. John, so you're giving evidence about the way that you continue to try to learn and adopt ever better habits as as you go along. Your role is really interesting. Your background is really interesting. You also have some habits in terms of reading and writing and the kinds of questions that you ask of people whom you're around that are pretty remarkable. So could you walk through some of the things that you do on an everyday, every week basis to try to keep I would say uh, there are a couple of things that experts do really well. One is as they continue to learn and, and recognize new patterns in the environment. And the other is they reinforce habits. So could you talk about the ways that you do that for yourself and any guidance or encouragement that you might have for our listeners of, of simple things they can do to stay in tune with the environment, to reinforce good habits and, and continue to make themselves more agile and effective going forward? Well, you said something at the beginning that is basically the overview of all this. Years ago, I read a book called The Cambridge Handbook of Expertise and Expert Performance, about a thousand page book written by experts about how to become an expert. So I'll, I'll save you the reading here. <laughs> it's from the Department of uh, Redundant Department. Department. Redundancy yes. Department, yeah. <laughs> so I, it basically boiled down to four key things that it takes to become a true expert. They all luckily start with P, so you can remember them. The first one is passion. And this just stands to reason. If you don't really, really love something, it's hard to become among the best of the world at it. So you got to be deeply passionate about the topic, the subject, the hobby, the whatever it might be. The next one is persistence. And you've probably read Malcolm Gladwell's book or a bunch of people have outliers. And the numbers he uses in there is 10 years or 10,000 hours of study, of research. Actually, it's the third P, practice. So we're passionate about something, I'm persistently pursuing it, and then I'm practicing, but it's a special kind of practice called deliberate practice. And what deliberate practice says is you have a friend, a coach, a colleague, somebody constantly pushing you to do a little bit better, practice the things that are a little bit harder, to always be on the, on the leading edge, cutting out there. So you're deliberately practicing to make yourself better. And after you do all three of those for years, you begin to be expert at pattern recognition. It's like somebody that, you know, is a great athlete. They drop into the pocket or they look at the field. They can see the entire field or the entire court at once. It's how a, a chess grandmaster looks and sees all of the boards and sees all the different moves. When you really become good at something, and this is in business too, you begin to see trends and anomalies and patterns that other people don't see, and that becomes your competitive advantage. So now to turn this in, one of the things I've built my entire career on is finding patterns. I read about 100 to 120 business books a year, and I have every year since 1989. And people go, like, don't they get redundant? And I go, yes, it's great. You know, <laughs> if, you read, if you read 70 books or 80 books on leadership, and they all basically say the same things, I found the pattern. Then I can use that pattern to start to what we call, you know, the adjacent news, to take the information I have, the stuff that I've learned, the study, the pattern, put it next to new information that I've never seen put them together. And that's where new ideas come from. I think we discussed it right before we went on that I do have a program that I teach called the future of work, but I am not a futurist. 
at all. I'm what I call a todayist. And the difference is, is I'm talking about the stuff that's happening right now. There are amazing technologies, huge changes, things like that, that it's not an if this will happen. It's a when. It's already happening. It's coming out. And some of that, I mean, I just give you a really quick example. This is a, a statistic I have to check every time before I teach it. What is the fastest computer in the world? And it used to be one that did, and if you go up, you know, your average laptop does like 30 trillion operations or something like that a second. The fastest one, regular supercomputer, was 380,000 trillion operations per second. 380,000 trillion, except for the new Google quantum computer came out, and it's about a million times faster than that. They gave a math problem to the supercomputer that would have taken it 100,000 years to solve. The Google quantum computer did it in three minutes and 20 seconds. I could give you 15 other things like that, you know, in biomechanics and robotics and AI and deep learning, whole things that are all happening now. And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't paying attention to it. Uh, so one of the roles I play is all that studying, all that learning. I'm looking for the patterns to be able to help my clients deal with business today, but have an eye to the future, understanding that this isn't 20 years off. It's 10 or five or three. And I need to start preparing for it today. And machines aren't going to run the world. We still need human intuition, human leadership and all that. But, but there's so many applications, as you, as you say here, in terms of understanding what is either already happening or we're seeing the first indications of where it's going to accelerate in the very near term. Very interesting stuff, John. How can we here among our message manager listeners keep up with what you're doing in the best way possible? You've got a website. You're very active on LinkedIn. You do videos. You do blogging. You do a lot of things, John. So well, <laughs> how can we uh, begin to uh, keep up with you at, exactly and to connect with you as well? My website's pretty easy, johnspence.com. But here's what I would recommend. Go sign up for my blog, and I only put a blog up only when I think it's valuable. But there's something else that's really cool. I have a newsletter that comes out every two weeks, totally free, and it's driven by AI. And I read for a, a minimum of an hour a day. Every day, I keep up on with Fortune Forbes, Inc., Strategy and Business. I'm reading a book, whatever. And when I find something really impressive, I put it to my LinkedIn site, which is very powerful, but I put it to my Twitter and the AI from my newsletter pulls down all of the articles I read that I post, probably 150 a month or something like that. And then it chooses based on what you're reading. Would you open up the newsletter? It continually customizes it to your needs. So if you, let's say, Jim, really seem to focus on the leadership stuff more than the strategy stuff, it's going to make yours into your own personal leadership newsletter with only the best articles that I'm reading on the topics you're the most interested in. And that thing has been phenomenal. From a business standpoint, if you're someone that does newsletters, a company called Raza.io, R-A-S-A.io does it. And a typical open rate on a newsletter is about 8 to 11%. Mine runs 58 to 65% because the information is so customized to the people that are reading it. So if there's anything you do, I would get that because it's going to give super, super helpful information, almost none of which I actually wrote. <laughs> just stuff, <that> I, <laughs> stuff from other smart people or smarter people who I thought, this is impressive information. Let me put it out there. 
terrific. We will have links in our show description to all that. John, just a great example of, of what you were talking about, of using tools and technologies in a way that becomes more and more personalized for the people who actually read it and are connected to you. So thank you for that. And John, thank you again very much for joining us here on the Manager Message podcast. And hopefully uh, it won't be too long. We can have you back. That'd be great. Thank you. It was an honor to be on with you, Jim. Thanks to John Spence. And thanks to you for joining the podcast, whether you're a returning message manager or perhaps this is your first time in. I'm finding it, it is particularly important these days to keep the conversation going with your team, with customers and prospects, and with peers. I hope this podcast is among the ways you can continue to get ideas and encouragement for growing your business, and even to expand your connections and relationships. We have a few more expert guest interviews in the pipeline for you. I also have some solo episodes coming up. I believe we will soon, I don't know exactly what soon means, but soon be heading into a new business season recovery, surge, certainly growth with some changes. And I want to help you keep your message right and to position your business appropriately. If you and I haven't yet connected on LinkedIn, then I would welcome that. I post regularly on LinkedIn and try to contribute to others' conversations as well. You can also follow me on Twitter. And you can find a number of resources on my website, jimcar.com, including a free sampler from my new book, I'm also happy to share ideas with you directly. You can email me at jim at jimcar.com or send a message via LinkedIn. My direct number is also on the website. We can set up a Zoom meeting or just talk on the phone if you need a break from Zoom. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at ManageYourMessagePodcast.com and JimCar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often. <laughs>